0: Welcome to the Well-Balanced 360 podcast, where we dive into the latest and best tips on medicine and spirituality to help you master your health and overcome your fears so that you can feel your absolute best. I'm your host, Dr. Shivani, a licensed medical doctor, a yoga nerd, and a wellness enthusiast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. Now let's dive in. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Broderick, who's a neurologist specializing in sleep medicine, and we discuss how to improve your overall sleeping habits. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Broderick. I'm so excited to have you and to dive into this important topic of sleep. But before we get into all of that, I would love for you to give us your background and how you became a sleep specialist.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm just always happy when people are interested in talking about sleep and learning about sleep. I am a neurologist by training and I grew up in a family that I think every one of us had a sleep disorder, except I didn't really realize that at the time. But of course, when I was going through my medical training, I really had a lot of trouble just with the sleep deprivation and the shift work. And I came to realize that neurology had a subspecialty of sleep medicine. So I got really interested in sleep medicine just from kind of a personal interest, but also as a subspecialty of neurology. And so I ended up doing my fellowship in sleep medicine. So that's kind of how, I mean, that's the short version of how I ended up doing what I'm doing. Well, it's wonderful. I mean, I feel like we all
0: go through stages where we have sleep issues. It's such an important thing to talk about.
1: So why don't we just get into it? Why don't
0: people sleep?
1: I think it's simple and it's complex at the same time because part of it is a product of the modern age where we're sort of inundated with things that are designed to grab our attention, but also with artificial light, which is a very important part of our physiology and what helps us sleep. And then we're also dealing with kind of this 24-hour-a-day life where we're not really dependent on the light-dark cycle from the sun in order to be active or or to be sleeping. And so we can kind of go off on our own schedule and people often do. I mean, people work night shifts and second shifts and rotating shifts and things like that. So I think there's just all these things that are a result of the modern age in a way that are contributing. In addition to then you could go into the stress and people wanting to get the most out of their lives in every second. So I think there's so many different like aspects to it. Yeah, I was
0: just about to say stress plays such a big role in that, I'm assuming, especially given the pandemic. Why do you feel some people need more sleep? Or is that just a belief?
1: It's a really interesting question. I mean, we do know that Sleep needs are variable. There are these very, very rare people who are what we call short sleepers who truly only require like four or five hours to sleep and feel rested. And then there are people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum too that they really need more of like 10 to 12 hours. But we do really think it is one of those bell curve type phenomenons where most people are going to fall into like a seven to nine. And I think I would also say that there are some people that they're just not aware that they're sleepy. So they may think they're sleeping fine. They may think they don't need more sleep, but they actually do. And I have some memorable cases where that happens because a lot of times sleep disorders, they come on really slowly. And so it's kind of like the frog in the pot story, a fable, if you've ever heard that where the temperature is rising really slowly and you sort of don't notice that you don't feel normal anymore. And so the same thing happens where people feel like their sleep is normal, but it's actually not, they're actually sleeping too little or not enough. So it can be like a perceptual disturbance too.
0: And you said some people just need like three to four hours of sleep. There are these
1: people called short sleepers. And I think there've been some cases where there's a genetic reason why they need less sleep. And obviously that's really interesting. I want to say like Bill Clinton, we think is one of those people. I can't remember if it's him or not, but there are truly are some people that they function completely normally and they only need like four hours of sleep. I wonder what that even
0: feels like because I am the queen of naps. I can nap at any time of the day. It doesn't matter where I am. It is really fascinating. And what about the people that have trouble falling asleep? Why do you feel that is? Does it relate back to stress or does it have a lot of other components to that as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there can be different reasons why that happens, but in the kind of classical chronic insomnia category, we think that it's actually a conditioned behavior. And so we conceptualize it very similar to like Pavlov's dog, where People were conditioned to be awake in bed. And so they developed this pattern. So even sometimes people in the very like textbook cases of insomnia will say, I'm really tired, I'm exhausted, but the moment I get in bed, I feel wide awake. And it's because it's this condition response. And of course you're not consciously aware that you're doing that, but we think that in cases of chronic insomnia, that that is one of the reasons why. And then there's other reasons, like sometimes people who are struggling with insomnia they tend to try to go to bed too early or at a time when there's a high circadian alerting signal or there's other sort of behaviors that kind of contribute to not being able to catch the wave at the sweet spot where you should be going to sleep.
0: And if somebody's having trouble falling asleep, is there something they can do to kind of
1: mitigate that and help to just go to bed? I think it really depends on the cause. I mean, The nature of sleep problems, a lot of them is complex. You can have like 10 people with chronic insomnia and the reasons will be slightly different in the different people, almost like different flavors. Part of what I do is really investigating that and trying to figure out like, okay, for this person, it's really they're a night owl and they're trying to go to bed too early. For this person, it's really this conditioned response where they've developed what we call conditioned arousal. So they're struggling a lot. They're staying in bed awake a lot. They're anxious while they're in bed a lot. For other people, it's because maybe they were outside until 930 at night getting bright sunlight and then they're on their phone. Maybe for the next person, they're going through something really stressful in their lives and they're just, their arousal system is very heightened. So there can be sort of these different components that we evaluate and try to look at.
0: How would you define dreams? And do you feel they are connected to your subconscious mind? Do you feel like they have meaning?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think most of us, when we think about dream interpretation, we think about like Sigmund Freud and we think about psychoanalysis. And I think that that type of interpretation is probably a little dated. To me, in a way, I think they're a byproduct of the brain story memories and learning. But incidentally, I do think there is some meaning behind them because people will notice that when they're more stressed or when they're anxious, they will have vivid dreams. I don't think we can make too much out of them. I don't think they can forecast the future or things like <laughs> that, but I do think they can tell us a lot about the person and there are like specific situations, so. If someone was to tell me, okay, I've been having this recurring dream where I'm late for class or I'm doing something like that. It just tells me the person's anxious, right? We call them even anxiety dreams. When people have PTSD and flashbacks and nightmares, they can also have very vivid dreams. And so again, that just tells me maybe this person is experiencing stress and trauma. Another situation that comes up a lot in the clinic is when people have untreated sleep apnea, very often they will have dreams that they're being choked or chased or suffocated or drowning. This is not a scientific interpretation, but I kind of think it as like if you've ever wet the bed and you dream you're on the toilet when you're doing it, I feel like in the real life you're actually suffocating because you're having that obstructive breathing event and somehow it's getting incorporated into the image you're having.
0: What is the best way, I'm sure you get this a lot, to sleep train children?
1: I appreciate this so much more now that I'm a mom because I see so much more nuance to it now. I don't know if you have the same experience, but I think there's no right way. I think that there are good ways and better ways, and I think there are ways that are right for certain children and certain families. When I was doing my training, I remember seeing a lot of, parents that had young kids that they were trying to sleep train them. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, why can't you just do it? Why can't you just do the Ferber method and just have the discipline and just do it? I didn't really appreciate, maybe I wasn't returned up at the time, but I didn't appreciate it the way I do now, how difficult it is to maybe know about attachment theory and know about what it's like, especially the postpartum period. And wanting to meet your child's needs and things like that. So for me personally, I kind of did like a balance. There were times where my daughter definitely did cry it out, but not every time. For me, I kind of made, instead of doing like a time interval, I did more of like a checklist where we would put my daughter to sleep and then I would have a checklist for myself. Like, is her diaper clean? Has she been fed? All these things that you worry about, like could be wrong and you want to go check on. And then if that's the case, you reassure and you say, I'm going to wait this many minutes. And if, you know, and so to me, I felt like I kind of just needed to do what was right for me. And I know like for some parents, they need it to be more concrete than that. They need more structure to be able to know when to go in and when not to go. And I think there's some parents that are more concerned about attachment theory or maybe have been more bothered by People telling them that sleep training or using the Ferber method or using an extinction method is like going to be harmful. So I think that that varies. What I'm just aware of in general is that sleep training is cultural. And I think we have to work with like each family to find what fits with that, the child's disposition and what the family needs.
0: You kind of mentioned the sleep apnea earlier. Which I know there's a lot of people out there that <laughs> usually it's their spouse that complains that they yes. snore too loud. What causes snoring and is there a way to prevent it?
1: Yeah, snoring essentially what it is is it's high resistance airflow in the airway. So it can be in the nasopharynx or it can be, you know, in the upper airway. So typically we're talking like higher than the vocal cords. So it can be coming from the throat or the nose. When we're awake and we breathe, everything's you don't hear anything. But when we go to sleep, our muscles and our throat relax. We also have some changes in our position, which makes breathing a little bit different from like an anatomical standpoint. Our lung volumes might be a little bit smaller, things like that. And so when the airway starts to close, the airflow resistance increases and then the tissue, the soft tissue lining of our airway, it vibrates. And that's what snoring is. So snoring can come from, anatomical things. I had a nasal polyp, I have allergies, and my turbinates are swollen. It can come from having large tonsils. It can come from excess tissue in the airway for any reason, lingual tonsils. It can also come from people gaining weight. So a lot of people, when they gain weight, well, not a lot of people, everyone, when they gain weight, they gain weight in their tongue, and they gain weight in the neck. And that also crowds the airway and makes it smaller, which makes it more conducive to creating snoring. We think that over time, it kind of is a vicious cycle because the snoring causes a vibration injury to the lining of the sensory aspect of the upper airway. So the nerves that sense and control the airway. And that vibration injury then makes the airway more susceptible to collapse. And then it worsens over time and it kind of progresses to partial closures, full closures, and what we call sleep apnea. So preventing it really is, weight is one way, although I've had very fit, very healthy ultramarathon runners that snore. And that can be purely anatomical. So children that grow up mouth breathing, for example, they don't develop appropriately in their jaw bones. And so they end up having these recessed jaws and then the tongue sits higher and back into the airway. So some of the proactive steps that we can take really start when a child is four or five years old with orthodontics and getting proper tongue posture and things like that.
0: Yeah, I don't think people realize how important oral health is to sleep because you mentioned even that when you gain weight, you gain it in your tongue. I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't even know that.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. One of the surgeons that I work with here in town, one of the sleep apnea surgeons I work with here in town, she was involved in a study where they actually would do biopsies of the tongue. They would find that these folks with sleep apnea, like they just had so much fat deposition in the tongue. You see your tongue and you're like, oh, your tongue's this cute little thing. But if you ever look at it on like a scan, it's actually like this gigantic muscle that goes all the way into the floor of the mouth or in the <laughs> mandible. It's a huge muscle. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever called my tongue
0: cute. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a good look at it the next time I'm brushing my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me to my next question. Cause we did talk about if you gain weight, you can gain it in your tongue what role does diet play with sleep if it does at all? And are there any foods that you feel that can support sleep if you're having trouble sleeping?
1: I definitely do. And I think that we're going to learn more about this with time as humans. We're really meant to like live seasonally. If you think about eating seasonally and you think about the dark season, like we're meant to sleep more in the winter than we do. We're meant to be more active in the summer and Different foods have more melatonin, let's say, for example. And maybe those were going to be more in season, like in the fall, where it might help kind of play this role, our diet. I just don't think we know really the details of that yet. What we do have really good evidence for is that low carb diets seem to be associated with better sleep quality. And so, generally, what I tell my patients is like being healthy, just in general is associated with better sleep. So that means eating a healthy, balanced diet. That can be different things. It doesn't mean you have to be vegan. It doesn't mean you have to be a vegetarian, but I do think that low carb is very important in general, probably for other things too, right? But especially for that, we have really good evidence for in the sleep literature as being associated with improved sleep quality.
0: And what about foods that are higher in melatonin?
1: I think that it's a good idea as is eating foods that are high in magnesium and high in a lot of things that we know are associated with sleep. I just don't know that by itself, it's enough to really make like a clinical difference, if you know what I mean. So like, I think conceptually, yes, it's a great idea. I have had one patient recently, I know that has been experimenting with that and like eating a lot of cherries, Mm -hmm. for example, but it's just really hard to know like how much of that is a placebo effect? It's really hard to know if that's a scientific result we're seeing. I think we just don't have studies yet to support that being an answer. But I don't think it can hurt, so I never like discourage people not to do that.
0: And that brings me to supplements. We did kind of mention melatonin. Magnesium is another one. There's glycine. I know there's many out in the market. Lavender essential oil. I don't know if you can take it in pill form. I'm sure you can. Well, what are your thoughts on all these supplements that are out on the market?
1: Well, first of all, I have a lot of thoughts about supplements. I think in medical school, a lot of us are trained to be afraid of supplements because a lot of us are told, hey, they're unregulated. You don't really know what's in there. You don't know if the person's getting a high quality product. But you know, nowadays, I think there are better products available. And so to me, like I really, my mind has opened up more to like, how can these supplements be helpful? And also people are going to take them anyway. So you might as well figure out how do you advise people to take these, but to be smart consumers, right? Melatonin is actually probably the most useful supplement when it comes to sleep. But what I will say is that it's probably used the wrong way and misunderstood how to use it, because it has properties that can shift the circadian rhythm forwards or backwards, like later or earlier, depending on when you take it. And also I think most people take too much of it. So for example, there was a really good study done with melatonin where we looked at people of various ages and what they found was that for people over 65, it was very beneficial as like a hypnotic agent. And we think partially because that area around the pineal gland, most people have microvascular disease and the pineal gland becomes calcified and they just don't produce as much melatonin. And so in that situation, it can be really, really helpful. For people who have circadian wake rhythm disorders, so these extreme night owl folks, jet lag, things like that, we can use it as a phase shifting agent. So we might go, Half a milligram six hours before the natural bedtime, there's these other very nuanced ways of using it. So I love using melatonin. I think the biggest challenge I have is it's hard to find it in these smaller doses that we need, and just kind of educating people on how to use them because sometimes people will come in and say, "Oh, I already tried it, it give me nightmares, and it doesn't work for me." And they just were using it incorrectly. so that's kind of my thoughts, and then lavender is another supplement that has been shown in some good studies that it is helpful. Any person with really severe chronic insomnia will tell you it did not cure their insomnia. So it's not like it's a cure all, but I think it's just a really nice thing that can be helpful, but kind of gives you a push in the right direction.
0: What about like magnesium glycine and even CBD?
1: So CBD is actually something that is very interesting because I think that there probably is therapeutic potential there. I mean, I almost want to say I know there is, but I think the question that we all have is like, how do we use it? How do we dose it and how do we use it? And so we do have that one FDA approved CBD product on the market, but we're using it in a very small pediatric disease that is very rare. So what I tell people is I'm not going to probably recommend something with a promise that it's gonna fix things, but I have an openness to say, well, let's do an experiment with it and see what happens. There isn't really good data on CBD right now, like at this point in time for insomnia. I think it's probably stronger for other things like pain and muscle spasticity, or even anxiety than it is for sleep right now. But I also think we're gonna learn about that. You know, I think that that might be coming magnesium, also a lot of evidence that helpful for sleep, I think leg cramps as well, or even restless legs, people can find it useful. So I think in the right situation, it can be really helpful. But sometimes I think with supplements, there's a mindset of like a cure all type thing. I think it's just trying to educate people that we need to be really specific about what we're using for and like set our expectations for what the result from using it is.
0: And then there's also GABA too, which I forgot to ask about earlier.
1: I would say the same about GABA. I kind of fit it in that category. I mean, I would probably put melatonin and magnesium, melatonin, maybe the magnesium below it, and then maybe a subcategory where there's maybe less evidence of less certainty about objective measures of improvement in sleep, you know, probably helpful and probably not harmful to put GABA. Tryptophan is another one that comes up a lot. I read a study recently that saffron extract. I saw, read a trial recently with that showing benefit. Yeah, I think these things are worth trying and they're safe. And I kind of mentioned this earlier where I like to
0: take a lot of naps. So I wanted to ask you, do you feel naps interfere with your nighttime sleep cycle?
1: I do not feel that naps necessarily interfere with your nighttime sleep. But they do have an impact on the sleep wake cycle. And so it depends on the person, to be honest. If I have somebody with chronic insomnia, I'm really, really going to try to get them not to nap because it is a little bit counterproductive to the retraining process. If I have an older, retired person, the nap is encouraged because it's a normal part, especially as we get older, of our physiology. But I have to educate that person that. If you nap for an hour during the day, you can't expect to sleep eight hours at night because the amount of sleep that your body needs on average on a 24-hour basis, you can't increase it. Your brain's only produce so much. So if you spend some of your money during the day, you have less at night. I think that's a common thing I see with people who nap, especially in like a retired population or maybe even like an unemployed or a disabled person. It's like if you're dozing off after dinner in your recliner for an hour, then you're not going to sleep eight hours at night. Like your sleep debt and your sleep drive isn't high enough when you replete some of it with a nap. So that being said, naps are completely physiologic. Are Alerting signal in our brain goes down in the afternoon, usually about seven to eight hours after we wake up. And it's very physiologic and normal to take a nap then. So, if it feels good and people have the ability and their life allows for it, like take a nap. It'd be very luxurious. But just know that you probably will only need seven hours of sleep at night or maybe even six and a half. If you take that nap, that makes sense. Yeah. But if you take like a
0: power nap, like a 10-minute nap, that's probably a different situation. I don't know what 10-minute naps mean. I feel like once I take a nap, I'm there for at least 20 to 30 minutes, if not more. For someone who's struggling to sleep, minus seeing a sleep specialist, what are some things that they can start incorporating now? Does that start with supplements? Does that start with weighted blankets, chili pads? I mean, there's tons of things out there. What would you recommend?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the things that I would just tell, like my friends or family, if they came to me and said, I was having trouble sleeping is I would say, go on the national sleep foundation website, download their sleep diary and just keep a sleep diary for a week. A lot of us have distortions and what we think our sleep is or isn't and we overgeneralize one way or the other, we might worst case scenario, we might think things differently a little bit than reality. I would say the first step would really be keep a sleep diary and then take a look at it with some of the practical knowledge that you can find anywhere. How regular are your bedtimes? How regular are your wake times? How much time are you spending in bed? Are you watching TV up until bedtime? Are you napping excessively? Are you taking too much caffeine? Some of these things that, we talk about over and over and over, sleep hygiene, things like that. Take your sleep diary and compare yourself and say, how would I grade myself on those things, right? And then wherever you grade yourself is like not doing that well, make a change. I don't like people to go to a supplement or a device as the first step. I like them to go with just a behavioral change. Like to me, that's like a getting to the root of the problem. hmm
0: Agreed. Where can yeah. people find more about you? I know you only practice in certain states, but you do share some informational content even on your Instagram.
1: Yeah, I'm at Sleep Doctor Mare on Instagram and I do share some cases there. They're usually pretty abbreviated, but I also have a website, www.soundsleepguru.com. And I do telemedicine for California, Alaska and Washington. And also can do like sleep wellness or optimization plans for people if they're interested. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for
0: being on the show and sharing your incredible knowledge on sleep, which we all need more of.
1: (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Well-Balanced 360 podcast. I'm truly grateful for all of you and excited to have you join me on this health and wellness journey. Please be sure to stay connected with me over at drshavaniameen.com or any of my social media platforms. If you found this episode to be helpful, I would truly appreciate it if you would also hit that subscribe button and make sure to tell all your friends so you don't miss any future episodes.
1: I'll catch you next week.